Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is coming to you from San Antonio, Texas, where a number of us have come for a meeting called the Evangelical Theological Society. It's an annual meeting of scholars, uh, New Testament, Old Testament theology, biblical studies, who come together to give papers. But, you know, one of the great things is just the fellowship that happens in the hallways, meeting people, networking. Well, I have the great privilege today of speaking with a person who's a kind of new friend to us, to me. His name is Mike Bird. He is a lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, an amazingly prolific writer. I told him he has a book a month just about, hard to keep up with. Anyway, Mike, thanks for joining us for this conversation. G'day, Tim. Thanks for having me. We're honored to have you on this program, and I want to ask you to begin just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where, where did you come from? Uh, what, what, how did you get into academia? Those kind of yeah. questions. Uh, that's a long story. Um, I was uh, originally born in Germany because my dad was in the British Army. But when I was very young, my uh, parents divorced and I moved with my mother to Australia where I, I grew up. My mother remarried there and I grew up in a uh, suburban uh, house in Brisbane and we had, we had a, it was a very non-religious upbringing. Uh, it was a secular upbringing and you know I didn't have anything to do with you know, faith or Christianity in my life. Uh, in fact, I tell people that everything uh, I knew about Christianity growing up, I, knew, I learned from The Simpsons. <laughs> so uh, pretty much Ned Flanders was the only Christian I knew uh. growing up. Uh, but, you know, there was a, there was a, it was a sort of fairly standard suburban life, but in many senses it was also very dysfunctional, yeah. um, which, you know, wanted, made me want to leave home very quickly yeah. uh, to get out of it. And uh, uh, in high school I was what I would call a B-minus student, so I wasn't too bad, but I wasn't brilliant. But uh, I didn't have any grades that could get me into into college. I, you know, I just couldn't do it. So I, I, the next thing I could do was join the army. So I joined the army, and I did that for a number of years. And I sort of adopted the kind of you know army lifestyle. If you know what uh, young lads are like when they uh, get out of home for the first time and have too much freedom, and, and I found that to be very meaningless and, and inane. And I worked with a guy who was a Christian. He invited me to church for the first time. Mm. And, you know, I just assumed churches were filled with moralizing geriatrics. Mm. Uh, and so I was very shocked and surprised the first time I went to church to find some very um, normal people, you know, accountants, school teachers, everyone from young families to retired people. And these people were different. They, they, were, they weren't just nice people. They were uh, extraordinarily nice. There was, there was something very different about them. And I found out what made them different was Jesus Christ. And I heard the good news about mm. his death and resurrection, mm. salvation through him. And in 1994, I uh, you know, committed my life to Christ, and the world's been a different place ever since. And uh, so I still remained in the Army for a number of years, met myself a very um, uh, lovely young lady from um, Gladstone uh, in uh, central Queensland. And uh, eventually we got married, and I decided I wanted to leave the army and go into ministry. I wasn't too sure what kind of ministry at this stage. I was thinking maybe army chaplaincy would be something I could do. Uh, but I went through uh, seminary, Malmian um, College in Brisbane. I learned that my giftings were probably more on the academic side. I really began to uh, flourish uh, in that area. And I was able to go to the University of Queensland and, and do a doctorate in, um, in New Testament. And I taught for some years at the Highland Theological College in Scotland and then at the Brisbane School for the Theology in Brisbane. And in more recent years, I've ended up at uh, Ridley College, 
where I serve as a lecturer in theology and New Testament. Now, when we hear the name Ridley, we think immediately of the great martyr of the English Reformation. Oh, definitely. And tell us a little bit about Ridley College. And you're an Anglican. Yes. Uh, and a priest recently. Yeah, yes, so, I was priested last year. Say a little bit about Anglicanism in Australia in particular. Oh, let me say first of all a bit about Anglicanism. Um, in my view, um, the genius of Anglicanism is you get to be Protestant and Catholic at the same time. That's, that's what I really like about it. Uh, my good friend John Dixon says, Anglicanism is what the Catholic Church would look like if you embraced the Reformation. Ah. Uh, which, which is a nice that's way. A good, that's, a good, that, that's a good way statement. of putting it. Yeah. Um, now, we have some in-house debates amongst Anglicans about what it means to be Anglican, and there's mm -hmm. different wings ranging from the evangelical to the more Anglo-Catholic and the liberal. Uh, so it's a bit Anglicanism in general. Uh, in Australia, we have a relatively broad Anglican church, which can include people who, who represent those divisions, those who are very Anglo-Catholic, very uh, liturgical, or you might say very very high up on the candlestick. Uh, and you can find that spread throughout the country. Uh, you can also get some groups that are very progressive, uh, and others who are very um, evangelical and very Protestant, particularly in Sydney. Sydney is definitely a, a bulwark of uh, Protestant um, Anglicanism. In Melbourne, where I am, it's, it's a lot more mixed. Um, you have some part of the diocese is somewhat progressive and Anglo-Catholic, but about 50% of it would be within what I would call a, a broad or moderate evangelicalism, mm -hmm. uh, which is committed to the, you know, the, the main elements of the evangelical faith, you know, the, the preaching of the cross, the necessity of conversion, and would maintain you know, an orthodox view of, of the Christian faith and, and ethics. And uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very good place uh, to work. Uh, I think we have a very good environment there. And really, College is a, a great uh, training institute where we train men and women, uh, not just for Anglican ministry, but for all sorts of, sort of people going into ministry. And I like to think we're one of the leading theological colleges in Australia. Do you have a mixture of denominations? In your oh, we certainly by? do. Mm -hmm. We certainly do. Um, recently in Australia, um, Pentecostals have eclipsed Anglicans as the second largest oh. denomination. Wow. So it now goes basically, um, you know, Catholics, Pentecostals and Anglicans have now been um, uh, delegated the third spot on the uh, on yeah. the demographic ladder, ladder when it comes to religion, uh, which is very interesting. And that's probably uh, uh, partly attributable to the, uh, the influences of places like Hillsong. Mm. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you a story. I was in. A, I was in. A, last time I was in Texas, I asked some students, "What's the capital of Australia?" And uh, one kid said, oh, "I don't know. Um, Hillsong." <laughs> uh, so uh, Australia is very well known for this powerhouse of Pentecostal um, uh, you know, church life. Their music. I mean, um, uh, Hillsong certainly has like church plants all over the world now. Uh, London, Paris, New York. Uh, LA and all sorts of places. So I mean that's that's one element of uh, Christianity in Australia. This this resurgent Pentecostalism that's around. Now I want to move to talk a little bit about your New Testament scholarship, your biblical scholarship. Yep. Uh, say what are you trying to do? You're writing so many books. What's your focus? Uh, that's a very good question. I just have wide-ranging interests and a short attention span. But um, what you do is is not superficial. It has depth. Uh, which is kind of what makes you unique in a way to me. I mean, you, you are covering a lot of material, a very broad sort of array of interests, but uh, you dig deeply also. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I've got wide-ranging interests, ranging from the Septuagint, historical Jesus, um, the Apostle Paul, Apostolic Fathers, Systematics. And I think it's important because I, I find there's great strength in being a generalist. 
you know, um, I, I understand why people do this, but I, I don't think I could spend 40 years to de- dedicating myself to Luke Axe <laughs> or just to Karl Barth or something like that. Now, in one level, you could argue it's necessary to do that because uh, in order to create a um, uh, what, what you might call a uh, you know a, a, a list a, a CV. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like, of publications in that one area, or a portfolio, you might say, in one area, or to keep up with the secondary literature. But I, I think there's a great strength in being a generalist, and that is you know, knowing a little bit about a lot of things. And I think that's particularly good when it comes to things like teaching. Um, you know, I mean, he, he who understands only the New Testament does not understand the New Testament, mm. uh, if you mm. ask me. Mm. Uh, I think we need to be people of more than one book. We need to know a lot more about literature, theology, that type of thing. And I, I will just come across some little topic that will interest me. And, uh, you know, whether that is uh, something in the Septuagint or the Apostolic Fathers. And it's like a little, little rabbit you just want to chase for a while. <laughs> and I, I just come across these small projects. I just like to chase them and see where they go. I'm going to mention a couple of your books. And maybe you can give us a little pricey. Mm. How about An Anomalous Jew, Paul Among Jews, Greeks, and Romans? Yeah, this is a, a book on the Apostle Paul. And it's basically, you know, where does Paul fit into the ancient world? Now, Paul was obviously a, a believer in Jesus, so, I mean, we would call him a Christian. But back in the first century, you know, Christian was not something that was separate from Judaism. It was kind of like a chapter uh, within uh, the Jewish religion, within the Jewish people, although it was certainly grading against some of the main tenets of the Jewish faith and pushing some of the boundaries of common Judaism. So where does Paul fit into this world? So I look at a number of questions like that, like how he related to other Jews, how he related to fellow Jewish Christians, how did he relate to the Roman Empire and Greek culture? So that's what that book, and Paul was uh, a little bit of, of an anomaly, you know, here. I mean, you, you have this you know, Jewish tent maker from Tarsus who, who lives you know, in the first century. He, he dies and no one knows really who he is. But that little ripple he makes becomes a tsunami by the time you get into the fourth century or even to our own modern period where we still feel the influence of the Apostle Paul on our politics and culture. Yeah. How about your book, Jesus the Eternal Son? Uh, this is a book where I argue that the heresy called adoptionism, that's the view that Jesus was a man who got adopted as God's son, either at his resurrection or baptism. I, I argue that that is a late development. Some people have tried to uh, put forth the case that adoptionism was probably the first view of Jesus that uh, the early church had after his resurrection. So their first view, the earliest recoverable Christology, we're told, is that at his baptism or his resurrection, Jesus was adopted as God's son. Uh, however, I think I can, I can prove, as uh, George Gershwin said, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> and I think I can put it forward a very good case. The first group really to argue that Jesus was adopted as God's son or, or deified in some sense was probably the Theodosians in the 190s in Rome. Mm. And I, I don't see any concrete evidence for any real adoptionist Christology before that time. Would you connect the uh, adoptionists to the Ebionites? Uh, no, that's often made, but I think it's actually wrong. If you read what um, Irenaeus says, and Irenaeus is a church father from uh, the second century, uh, what he attributes to them seems to be more of a two powers Christology. That's the idea that that the, the, the heavenly Christ or an angel came upon the man Jesus of Nazareth and entered him and, and, and sort of you know animated him in some sense. But I don't know if it's that. There's no actual reference to him becoming the son of God through that process. Yeah. Now, one of your books that I really liked, I, in fact, I was asked to endorse it, and I was mm-hmm. glad to do so, 
is called What Christians Ought to Believe. What a wonderful title. It is what very Christians provocative Christians Ought to Believe. An Introduction to Christian Doctrine Through the Apostles' Creed. Yep. Tell us about that book. Okay, that is a book I wanted to do. I wanted to write a basic summary of Christian doctrine. And I thought, one of, I mean, there's a number of ways of doing that. There's you know, different ways to skin a fish. But I thought one of the best ways to do it is simply to use the Apostles' Creed as a syllabus, mm. since the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest syllabi there is for teaching theology. So it was great to go through and to use that as a template, but also at the same time to explain the value and relevance of creeds mm. to modern audience. Uh, what an audience is that? And certainly there are some traditions, some denominations, for whom uh, creeds are not part of their liturgical life, their faith and their devotion, and they may have some misgivings or some apprehensions about them. And it was good to be able to write this book in such a way as to tell people that you really need the creed. Yeah. Now, I'm a Baptist. In fact, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Southern Baptist. That's yep. the worst kind. And, and there's a strong strain in the Baptist movement that says we're not creedal people. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we really mean when we say that is we're not creedalists. We don't want to elevate a creed you know, yep. above Scripture, of course. You know, we, no Protestant could would want to do that. Yep. No Christian should want to do mm. that. But in our own Baptist and free church tradition, there is a place for confessions of faith, mm. for creeds. Yep. And at Beeson Divinity School, which is not a Baptist school, it's an evangelical interdenominational kind of place, we have the Apostles' Creed actually in stone. When you enter into our chapel, there you see it. And if you apply as a student, every student has to write an essay on the Apostles' Creed. So when I saw, here's this Australian scholar writing about creeds saying, this is a good thing, I said, yes. Ah, excellent. Amen. Excellent. I think that's a, that's a very good strategy. Now, you have another book, uh, again, a broadly based book. Yes. It's kind of a doctrinal book, Evangelical Theology, published in 2013. Yeah. What is that? That is, pro out of all my books, that is without doubt my favorite. That's my, out of all my books, uh, because that's my attempt to try think through theology evangelically. What does it mean to, to, to do a, a bona fide evangelical theology? I mean, there's a number of good theology books written by evangelicals, but I wanted to do what I, I consider to be a, a true blue bona fide um, evangelical theology. And that, and that is a, a textbook or an approach to theology that makes the gospel central, that makes the gospel the interpretive theme. Because my crazy idea, and some people think I'm crazy, that the central theme in evangelicalism should be the evangel. Mm. That is the gospel. And I, I wanted to, to approach theology in such a way as that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, would be the center, boundary, and interpretive theme of theology. And so I tried to approach it using the, the gospel as the lens, as the organizing principle through which we went through all the major areas of Christian doctrine. And our feedback's been so far pretty good. Um, I'm hoping to do a second uh, edition. Great. Um, there's a few things I think I need to tidy up and, and yeah. fix up. But um, otherwise, I'm very happy with that book. That's, that's kind of like been my magnum opus so far. It's wonderful to see a New Testament scholar uh, who's also interested in dogmatics, in mm. theology, in the passing on of the faith from one generation to another. And let me say on that, the, the compartmentalization of our discipline is actually relatively new. Mm. Uh, once upon a time, New Testament scholars used to teach dogmatics, people like B.B. Warfield exactly. or Adolf yeah. Schlatter or even Leon Morris, uh, from yeah. you know, a, a famous Australian scholar, who's very well known for his New Testament exegesis, but, at, but in uh, college he taught systematics. And he was at Ridley, where you exactly. are. Exactly, he was yeah. at Ridley College. Everything's named after Leon Morris. We have the Leon 
Morris. <laughs> we have the Leon Morris lecture. We have the Leon Morris library, and I'm sure somewhere we even have the Leon Morris men's room or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I so I think the idea of um, scholars working across the disciplines is actually a good thing, yeah. uh, both for the person but also for the discipline itself. Now we've been talking about some rather broadly based works of yours, including evangelical theology. But now I want to I want to focus in on a more specific article that you wrote. It was actually a contribution, a chapter in a book called "The Gender Conversation." Yep. And I thought it was a great book. It was a book that brought together people who had disagreements mm. on one of the divisive issues within evangelicalism, what, yep. what we call, at least in this country, the complementarians versus the egalitarians, yep. and had both of those represented in the book, speaking respectfully to one another across yep. these divisions. But you wrote, a, you wrote a fascinating article in that book called, What Do We Do With the Household Codes Today?, mm. Say what the household codes are, and how, how are you approaching them in terms of this conversation? Okay. Uh, the household codes refer to those portions of the New Testament that you find in Colossians, Ephesians, and First Peter, uh, where the apostles give some instructions on how to organize a Christian household, along the lines of, you know, uh, wives obey the husbands, children obey parents, slaves obey masters. And in one sense, these are pretty much identical in many ways, not all every way, but in many ways to uh, the sort of ethics you would get from Aristotle. Okay, so these are almost standard tropes or um, ethical instructions for, you know, how you run a good household in the Greco-Roman world. And some people have said, and yet, and that's as it was back then, is exactly the same way we should run a household now. Um, and others would say, no, 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 this, 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 this is bad. Yeah, this was a failure of nerve. You know, Paul, the, you know, Paul who believed that in Christ there's neither you know, male nor female, he just lost his nerve and he baptized pagan ethics and, you know, and made his audiences, you know, want to hold on to them. But that, that, was, that, was, that, that Paul just lost his nerve. He didn't know what he was doing. And so you get these two different views. One, these things are, you know, pagan ethics that have been uh, loosely baptized. Another thing, we should just, you know, take them directly into our own time as if the first century and the 21st was the same time. Uh, what I argue is I think Paul and the apostles are being prudent in you know, accepting standard norms of running a household, but they do in some sense, and in a good way, liberalize them mm. uh, to make sure these are, uh, that these are going to be nuanced and they're going to be redefined according to a very uh, strictly Christian way of thinking about family, household, and relationships, uh, but there, but there is definitely an, an exactitude. You know, you know. Thank goodness we do not have things like slavery anymore, or anything like that. And uh, and you know, even within like marriage, Paul can also talk about things of mutual submission, which I think sort of you know defines or nuances what it means. So uh, I, I don't think the household codes are pagan ethics loosely baptized, but nor can we simply just pick them up and directly plant them to where we are now. There is a cultural distance between the two. Yeah, one of the things I like about you, Mike, is you're hard to pin down. I mean, uh, I don't I don't know how you think about yourself. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? Are you a moderate? Do those categories not apply? How, how do you understand yourself in terms of where you are on the landscape of evangelical Christianity? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes I like to think I'm the one sane guy in the asylum. <laughs> um, that's, how, that's probably a little bit grand. That's how it feels sometime, uh, sometimes. 
but you know, I consider well. First of all, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's the thing. You know, I'm a, uh, I do what I do for the one reason I love Jesus. You know, uh, as uh, Luther said, "No other God have I but Thee." Born in a manger, died on a tree. So that, that's very important for me. But you know, I also believe in the uh, the historical Christian faith, the apostolic faith, and I believe ev- evangelicalism is one of the best ways of doing that. Although I am learning that uh, uh, evangelicalism as a designation is becoming incredibly elastic and a mm. little bit very broad as to be almost meaningless in some sense. And I think maybe uh, recent events in America may uh, may make that a certain possibility. But I'm happy to identify as an evangelical. But at the same time, I don't want to be known as a, tr- a tribal or cultural evangelical. And I, I don't like it when people say you need to have this very specific view of biblical inerrancy or this very specific view of of gender. You know, I, I think as long as you're orthodox and you're committed to the gospel, uh, I think that's, that's what really what really matters. And, you know, I, I treat the Bible as God's word. It's not a negotiable. You can't cherry pick the bits you like. And uh, you just have to have an, have an honest and authentic faith and just do your best to follow Jesus in your own circumstance. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one more question about your role as a teacher. You're a professor at the yeah. Ridley College in, in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you teach students there, who are many of whom will go into some kind of ministry or church life. Uh, one of your students said that Mike Bird is a mix of outlandish humor and intellectual rigor. Well, that sounds right from my brief knowledge yeah. of you. Uh, but what are you doing as a teacher? How do you understand your vocation in preparing these God-called men and women to serve Jesus Christ and his church? Uh, what's the number, number of things? Well, the main thing I see myself doing is teaching students to be gospelizers. And that is they can, they, 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 to do things, to, to, to do that. I love what Kevin Van Hooter says, a Christian, or the task of theology, I should say, is that those who bear Christ's name learn to walk in Christ's way. And I, I think that is a really good way of approaching the task of theological education. I'm not trying to clone myself. You know, it's very good when your students come and believe all the things that you believe. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're, they're allergic to the things you're allergic from. It's very gratifying. Uh, but I, I'm not trying to create my own school. I'm not interested in creating a personality cult. I want to create people who can follow Jesus, and they are equipped to do what, you know, what we hear about the Thessalonians in Acts 17, people who will literally turn the world, not literally, but uh, will turn the world upside down. Mm. And that's that's what I really want to see. And that's what gets me up in the morning. And that's what gives me the joy to keep tormenting my students in the way that I do. That's wonderful. Give us that Van Hooser line again. That's wonderful. Uh, that, that those who bear Christ's name would learn to walk in Christ's way. That's great. That's those great who line. bear Christ's name would learn to walk in Christ's way. Well, you're helping a lot of us to do that. Mike. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And God bless you in your work. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.